0: Welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, and welcome to the Madden America podcast. I'm Micah Ingle, a doctoral student in psychology at the University of West Georgia, and a research news writer for the Madden America website. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Bethany Morris to talk about her work utilizing Lacanian psychoanalysis and a critique of psychology's medical model, as well as socio-political issues, ranging from the stigma of borderline personality disorder to what a psychoanalytic understanding of gender has to offer to contemporary social justice debates around sex and sexuality. Dr. Morris is a professor of psychology at Point Park's Clinical Community Psychology Program in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Bethany began her graduate educational journey as a student in child and youth studies at Brock University in Ontario, Canada. There she studied alternative anti-psychiatric interventions in early onset schizophrenia as illuminated by children's literature, as well as issues around women's stigmatization and oppression in the context of borderline personality disorder. Morris is a transdisciplinary scholar whose work bridges literature, philosophy, history, psychoanalysis, and film studies. In recent years, her work has focused on using the ideas of French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan to gain a critical understanding of the oppression of women, psychology's medical model, and other issues related to social justice. Recent publications from Dr. Morris include the co-authored book, Subjectivity in Psychology in the Era of Social Justice, as well as her first solo-authored book, Sexual Difference, Abjection, and Liminal Spaces. Welcome, Dr. Morris. Glad to be speaking with you.
1: Thank you for uh, having me.
0: You are welcome. First off, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your trajectory as a professor in psychology?
1: Yeah, so so you mentioned um, I'm currently uh, an assistant professor at Point Park University. This is my first year there. Um, prior to that, I taught at Lindsey Wilson College in um, rural Kentucky, and I received my my PhD from University of West Georgia. Before I, I moved down to Georgia, I was in... Um, you know, as you mentioned, Ontario, Canada, and, and Prince Edward Island, Canada. Um, my undergrad I got at the um, University of Prince Edward Island, where There, my original plan was to become a a clinical psychologist and, you know, quote, unquote, cure people. Um, And I was very uh, fortunate to have a professor at the end of my undergraduate uh, career there um, who helped me to really think critically about this idea of of curing people of their mental suffering um, without considering the the sociopolitical contingencies of that suffering. And so from there, I I sought out programs that would reflect that, you know, Brock University's um, Child and Youth Studies being one, um, and the University of West Georgia also being um, one of the few, and then now, of course, Point Park being another. Um, And I really try to emulate that in my own teaching now uh, to be a critical voice in this sort of omnipresent uh, diseased brain discourse. Uh, I began doing that in Kentucky with some really thoughtful and engaged students who were planning to go on to be clinicians. And now I'm trying to do that uh, with an injection of psychoanalytic theory at, at Point Park University.
0: Thank you. So you work at Point Park now. Uh, and the, as I understand it, the program there is a clinical community psychology program. Can you tell us kind of what you're doing there and maybe what the program's like? Yeah,
1: well, the, the psychology program at Point Park is quite unique. Um, we have a PsyD in clinical community psychology. So this uses um, evidence-based community research and interventions to address human suffering with a, like an appreciation for social justice and humanistic ethics. Uh, we also have a master's in community psych, which takes... Um, a humanistic approach to uh, the consideration of individuals and communities um, and draws on really broad theoretical interests like like humanistic theories, existential theories, um, feminist theories, liberation psychologies. Um, and the students in, in this program are really engaged in their communities um, and are, are very insightful about how they want to address inequality at different systemic levels. And then we also have the undergraduate program, which is, you know, broader, um, but seeks to provide students with, you know, the comprehensive background that um, uh, in psychology that many programs offer, but also with this emphasis of these unique threads that we have in our graduate programs. Um, We're also trying to get a PhD in critical psychology off the ground soon, which will focus on the ways in which psychology has contributed to uh, systemic inequality and then training future psychologists to engage with their discipline in a more critical and, and compassionate way so i i currently teach um, in the undergraduate and master's programs um, and the the interests and expertise of the faculty at point park are broad and and they're they're cutting edge compared to other psychology programs in the country and i'm i'm still quite new there but my contribution has been primarily at the intersection of Um, critical psychology, critical theory, um, and psychoanalytic theory, mainly helping students to learn and understand traditional psychology by asking um, how it has contributed to these issues of oppression in society, but also asking, okay, well, what can psychoanalysis offer us in our quest Uh, to think about the individual and the social as always, um, as already like inherently implicated in, in one another. Um, you know, Freud is typically dismissed in psychology as being unscientific or problematic, uh, for his views on, on childhood and women, which, you know, I I believe to be a a very unfair characterization of the man, but as well as a a dangerous, um, dismissal of a theory that was never meant to be psychological in the first place. So, um, my my approach is you know psychoanalysis um, as at, at its very foundation undermines psychology and the hyper objectivist approaches to studying human subjectivity. So that's that's kind of what I'm trying to do um, here at my position in Point Park.
0: Awesome. So it sounds like the program there has a lot going on. It sounds like some really important work. So you mentioned your work uses the ideas of. Jacques Lacan, psychoanalyst. Um, what is it about this approach that drew you into it?
1: I was always interested in, in psychoanalytic theory, and I remember being really frustrated when I got to my undergraduate psych classes, and I was told that Freud had um, been disproven because I, I thought that's what psychology was, and it bothered me that you know psychoanalytic theory was always relegated to film and literature studies, sort of dismissively, as if. Art had not, you know, been providing this like really intimate mirror into the questions that had been motivating human existence for hundreds of years before psychology uh, even even existed as a discipline. So, but the, but the reason that Lacan in particular attracted, attracted me um, was because of his conceptualizations of suffering. Um, because even though I didn't, you know, go on to become a clinical psychologist, my, my concern has, is still about the nature of suffering. I was critically oriented before, um, as you mentioned, I started uh, pursuing psychoanalytic theory. And so my conclusion was that, you know, contemporary, the contemporary diagnostic response to mental suffering was not only insufficient, but really harmful for the ways that it uh, reproduces assumptions that, that suffering is something the individual owns and is responsible for, as opposed to like a more complicated um, constellation of factors, social factors, right? So, but that, that response and, and pursuing that line of thought still left me with the problem that, well, like individuals, individuals are still the ones suffering, um, and pointing to systemic or social factors does not always, um, address that very intimate experience of suffering, um, so, so for example, Everyone and and anyone can tell you that the reproduction of untenable beauty ideals in the mainstream media uh, may be a factor in eating disorders and extreme dieting, and that's, of course, a big problem. But that doesn't tell you about the ways that those ideals become infused with meaning for the person refusing food, or how those beauty ideals become uh, really intricately woven with the language and ideas uh, shared amongst the family the person is immersed in, for example. So Lacanian psychoanalysis, and I think this is so, so important if we're going to think about human subjectivity, does not ask what's wrong with the person, instead it asks what question are they uh, attempting to ask about life itself um, and themselves in relation to others? And then how have they attempted to answer it with their behaviors? And I, th- I think that opens up new ways of thinking about human suffering that the, the traditional
0: medical model does not. Okay, thank you. So, it, so it's again, it's about this kind of attempt to bridge the social and the individual. That's really interesting. So your, your, your work and your interests are at the kind of intersection of psychoanalysis and these broader social issues. What kind of work do you do from this kind of intersection?
1: Well, my work is largely, um, theoretical and qualitative, uh, for a while now, I've been primarily interested in, um, issues of, of sexism, um, but also racism, um, particularly this idea from, um, Eduardo Bonilla Silva, I think I'm, I'm hoping I'm saying his name right, but I'm probably not, um, that, that we have a society of racism without racists and that, um, you know, many, many of the people who adopt ideologies and practices that would be labeled as, um, Sexists or racists usually do not identify them as such, even when they seem to be just blatantly so. We can critique this idea a little bit, but my concern following, following this, um, this statement is that analyzing social structures and, and behaviors can provide a lot of answers to questions about uh, prejudice and discrimination. But I felt that there were answers missing on the part of the actors perpetuating the prejudice and discrimination. And I find that a lot of the psychological analyses uh, of um, people who, who may be uh, considered racist or sexist um, so unsatisfying because they're typically um, diagnostic or degrading. You know, They cite mental disorders like antisocial personality disorder or uh, referring to psychometric tests like um, how people uh, who are sexist may also be narcissists or something like that. Um, and so i don't I don't know if that's entirely helpful because it reinforces the authority of the the um, psychiatric and psychological um, institutions. So psychoanalysis instead um, takes any any behavior or thought and not only asks why, but it helps the person themselves to ask why and and be curious about their own behavior, um, which then allows us to look at social issues not just in a purely descriptive manner, but rather ask what? Are the latent questions at work in in these various um, discourses, the the racist, sexist discourses. And this is where I'm beginning to situate my work. So I did this in my book where I looked at, you know, a number of historical practices and discourses that harmed women, you know, including like the witch trials, um, the borderline diagnosis, uh, looked at transphobia, and asked, okay, let's assume that the people that are complicit in all these things are not just like evil villains or, um, you know, just, just purely, uh, sadistic in what they're doing, but actual human beings struggling with something and, and something in particular when they're confronted with certain types of bodies or certain types of people. Um, so I, I did that in my book. I'm doing that a little bit with some research on, um, incel communities and MGTOWs, um, and, and also doing that a little bit with, um, thinking about how we uh, how we uh, talk about uh, racism and, and racist discourses.
0: Okay, thank you. Yeah, so it sounds like through this Lacanian approach, you're really trying to get at the fact that, one, there's a, a close link between the social and the, and the individual. Two, which is, you know, very interesting to our readers here, there's this attempt to kind of address people's suffering without it being kind of this top-down... Psy complex authoritarian model, which I mean, I, I think is really important. Uh, so, thank you for explaining that. In your book, you argue for what you call a renaissance of investigation into film and literature. So, does this kind of connect up with this issue of sort of a almost a psychology for the masses, a psychology for the people?
1: I don't know if it would be a psychology for the people, but I definitely think it would be more so um um, an encounter a different sort of encounter with human subjectivity. I believe that you know people who write literature, people who write films, they tend to have a better handle on the intricacies of human experience than most psychologists. and And maybe that's because um, most of these uh, representations of of humans in in art are not psychological but rather psychoanalytic and philosophical, right? And so art, you know, art has a way of, of speaking, you know, to the various existential and unconscious experiences that um, cannot be adequately addressed in a traditional um, reduction a reductionistic sort of psychological approach. Um, and, and in that, you know, art also makes demands of you that modern psychology does not. It asks you to bring something to the piece, um, to question your own uh, interaction with it, right? Um, a great example of this recently is the the new um, Chloe Zhao film Nomadland. If you've seen it, um, it's it's just a beautiful film that opens up way more questions and insights than it does fill in anything for the viewer, and and um, it, it really kind of it gets at what I'm what I'm hoping to demonstrate in my book and, and in my other pieces um, what art can do. Whereas with you know by by relying on the production of knowledge and psychology, um, you're essentially Essentially, kind of killing the subject you're studying, right? You're pinning them down, you're dissecting them, um, and what this means from a psychoanalytic perspective is that um, you foreclose desire and interpretation on the part of the, the subject themselves, um, and so they can't they can't be curious about themselves in the same way. Which doesn't mean it's entirely useless, uh, you know. Traditional psychological approaches, rather, it just means that they're they're studying something different. Um, than they claim to be. They're they're studying different instantiations of of mind, body, and and behavior. Whereas art, you know, in in addressing this question of the psychology of the masses, you know, both in its representation and in its confrontation with it, it evokes the unconscious, and therefore, you know, desire, human contradiction, suffering, and it actually lets the the human subject emerge.
0: Very interesting. Thank you. So maybe diving a little bit deeper into some of the Lacanian approach. I'm curious about, cause I know that you've done work on sex and sexuality and gender issues. Uh, so I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about a Lacanian approach to these issues uh, and kind of what that has to offer.
1: Uh, yeah. So I, I address a lot of this in, um, in my book, right. You know, it's it, my book actually comes, you know, after spending a long time being concerned about how ideas about women in particular, or women uh, in particular, like uh, problematic women, get reproduced. Um, and so I use Lacanian psychoanalysis to try and think about, um, you know, what we call sexual difference, but trying to think from the other side, uh, trying to think my way in from uh, not so much men, but like a patriarchal subject, right, which which is not, of course, limited to sex or gender. Um and essentially, it boiled down to me asking, okay, how do we get to a point where we think X about this group of people, right? Um, so, for example, um, you know, I used to believe, be believed that women were capable of Um, producing monstrous babies, even if, you know, if they could not control their emotions. There's um, a great excerpt in the British Medical Journal in the 1700s of a doctor explaining how um, his patient gave birth to a baby that looked like a frog um, after she was threatened by a young man um, who's going to throw a frog at her. (laughs) Uh, And the assumption is that there's something about being a woman um, in this case, being a pregnant woman that makes her susceptible to all sorts of like monstrous and, and horrific fates. Um, and we see this question about, um, you know, Freud's old question, what does a woman want, um, in all sorts of uh, uh, representations in history. We see it in the witch trials, uh, we see it in the discourse surrounding women who, who commit filicide, right, we see this um, in the representation of the femme fatale uh, in, in um, like Fatal Attraction, for example, which is then re-represented in the the diagnostic category of borderline personality disorder. And so, I emphasize a concern about sexual difference because in many of these practices and discourses, um, there seems to be an implicit assumption that there's something about women or, you know, in psychoanalysis, we would call them feminine subjects because in, in Lacanian psychoanalysis, there's not um, adherence to this biological imperative. Um, there's masculine and feminine subjects that don't necessarily correspond to uh, biology, um, but that there's something about these feminine subjects in which the knowledge of the time cannot hold. And so this follows much of what the French feminists were arguing, like like Kristeva, like uh, a um like Sisu. But instead, I, I'm trying to think through this phallic or patriarchal logic. Um, Attempting to create knowledge, like in short, like knowledge systems are, are reproduced to hold this anxiety of sexual difference um, is, is what I'm trying to argue. Um, and that in a number of cases throughout history in which you have feminine subjects whose behaviors or practices do not fit within the logic of that particular moment in history or, or what Foucault would call the, the episteme.
0: I'm seeing the link between what you said earlier about Lacanian psychoanalysis is wondering about sort of what questions people have for life or toward life. And and I'm seeing the connection here between the questions that society is asking of people, right. Or the demands that society is making toward people. So I'm seeing the link there between what you're saying and then this kind of general orientation. Yeah.
1: And that, because so much of, of these, um, the, the knowledge systems, right. Whether it be medicine or, um, or, or whatnot, right. That, it's produced through, through phallic logic that does not necessarily encapsulate all the people that it pertains to. And so you have this excess, right? And, and you can see this excess manifesting in, in what we're calling feminine subjects. So when uh, religious ideology was the, the way in which we understood the world, all of a sudden you had this excess being represented in witches, right? Because there's this confrontation with what we're calling um, in, in Lacanian analysis, sexual difference.
0: So continuing this theme around social justice a little bit, uh, I know that you've done some work with colleagues around sort of this issue of wokeness. uh, And I'm curious if you could explain what a kind of Lacanian approach, what it has to say about some of the contemporary kind of social justice issues that we're collectively trying to work through.
1: Yeah, well, the the book I worked on with my colleagues, um, Sebastian Grant and Chase Oguin and Sakenya McDonald, was was an investigation into how these ideas about social justice in our society may actually shape our, our subjectivity or our psychologies, right? So it's a it's a book that looked at a number of perspectives. Um, Lacanian analysis was definitely in there, um, but it also, and it, it looked at, you know, concerns about being woke as opposed to being compassionate and responsible to other human beings where um, wokeness may be understood as a demand as opposed to an ethic of relating to others. Um, and and in this book, we each emphasize different con- concerns in the book, but I think you could say that the collective project was to engage with the discipline of psychology during a really important socio-historical moment um, of, of, you know, social justice and asking how psychology has shaped our understanding of difference and and relationality, and is this, like, the best we can do, basically? Are we reducing people to uh, tropes and signifiers that correspond to different psychological notions of what? human subjectivity is, or are we engaging ethically and compassionately? And I think um, Lacanian psychoanalysis really um, hones in on that, especially with considering um, signifiers, right? Considering how we represent ourselves to other people and how people are represented to us, and then what do we do with that? How do we um, live ethically? Um, And so, so wokeness is definitely a concern in our book, but not in its in, not in the intention behind being woke, but more so how it is taken up discursively. And I'd say our book is more of a concern about how to promote um, you know socially responsible subjects in in these different social institutions.
0: Thank you. I mean, that sounds like some some really important kind of considerations of just how we're framing a lot of these issues. So I kind of want to back up a little bit during some of your master's work. You've been critical of kind of, Mainstream psychology's understanding of borderline personality disorder. Uh, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, I've been working on the concept of borderline personality in my since my undergrad. I had a really um, excellent professor there who grabbed hold of me and helped me shape some of my uh, my ideas about this. But yeah, I I have a problem with the diagnostic category, but I also um, have a problem with the ways in which this term has really permeated, um, our cultural discourse. Um, and I don't think you can separate the psychiatric discourse from the cultural discourse because that's not, um, that's not how knowledge works or is used, right? It permeates society, it shapes our understanding of different ideas, um, and then it, it re those, those institutions. And so my issue with the term borderline, um, really started when I would frequently hear it being used uh, by people telling stories, um, usually about their ex-partner, in a certain performative way. Notably, um, you know, it was typically used uh, by men talking about their ex-girlfriend. Not always, but but usually. Um, and the intention behind it was always to convey that they, the man, had gone through something, right? That they, uh, that remarking that they had dated someone who was borderline, um, and that that has cultural cachet. And I was really interested in how that was actually just a stand-in, for the term crazy, right? And and because, you know, accompanying this um, proclamation that their ex was borderline, there was usually facial gestures or uh, vocal intonations or something that was attempting to elicit um, sympathy um, or, or camaraderie, right? And so this phenomena, um, made me think about how we, we can use signifiers or terms that have been authorized by different social institutions to say something or behave in a way that others would, would find offensive or inappropriate. So, um, you know, using borderline instead of crazy, because it doesn't have the same, um, it doesn't index the same, uh, certain, you know, sexist assumptions. Um, but I don't, always think, I I don't think that this is far off from what the diagnostic category attempts to do as well. Um, Many other scholars, you know, have have called attention to the diagnostic criteria of the DSM-IV and how it pathologizes women for doing behaviors that uh, would be considered totally acceptable if they were performed by a man. Um, And in the fourth edition, right, it's even included that 75% of BPD cases are women. This disappeared in the fifth edition, of course, um, where they claim that they've, they've solved the problem. But, um, what I attempted to address in my book was that this can be this, this trend, this, um, phenomena of, um, the overrepresentation of women in the BPD category can be situated socio-historically similar to, you know, the witch trials or monstrous births and that the knowledge system of our time of our episteme is, psychiatry and, and psychology. And thus like the monsters that we actually create are going to look like, well, psychiatric patients or um and the ways that we talk about those people that disturb us are going to be informed by those knowledge systems as well. So rather than talking about how um a woman's desire or fear can imprint on her fetus and deform it and you know creates frogs, we talk about neurotransmitters and and psychometric tests and scales. Um so I, d- I do not think that BPD is the only diagnostic category that does this, but I think it is a really great representation of how um, it does this in response to concerns about what is considered appropriate behaviors for um, feminine subjects.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, I'm hearing a, a, a strong emphasis in your work on this, these kind of issues of uh, how you know some people are kind of accepted within society and then some people are are sort of sectioned off as deviant and they need to be fixed cured in some ways that's that's really interesting um so kind of on that topic I know that you're you're critical and you've mentioned this a little bit um you're critical of the kind of medical gaze uh which has been described by French philosopher Michel Foucault uh and you course talk about this in reference to the historical oppression of women I'm curious about your your current sort of thoughts about the the medical gaze and I mean maybe how that intersects with some of your current work
1: yeah Foucault has definitely been um, incredibly influential on my thinking and and the medical gaze has informed many of my critiques of traditional uh, psychiatry and psychology and I, I think it also relates to um, the work I'm doing with Lacan and Lacan's notion of the gaze um, in which the gaze of another shapes like who you are, right? Like, so think of a child who, who frequently requests to be looked at, right? Look at like, like, look at me, look at me, right? Or, or the child who, who cannot seemingly escape the gaze of another um, who's, who's constantly surveilled and how that may shape how one comes to uh, experience themselves and, and conduct their relationships. So the the gaze of another provides a a coordinate for our subjectivity. And if we think um, socio-historically, we can see how the gaze from doctors or clinicians um, have have really called forth different subjective possibilities, you know, what's considered sick, what's considered deviant. Um, And while this can be really restrictive, where I'm going with my work um, now, I think, is to also think about how often we demand the medical gaze to be turned upon us, right? Whether literally by a doctor or our internalized doctor <laughs> um, or through consultations with Fred, friends or, or websites. Um, and the thing that I'm you know, thinking about is that we experience through that gaze, right? The question I guess is, um, is there a way to have that relationship to the gaze that is less oppressive? But I think that uh, comes from addressing social issues, absolutely, but we also then have to consider the subject in the social, who is asking to have that gaze turned upon them, and so I guess that would be my um, Lacanian addendum to Foucault's notion, um, which I would even venture to say that, like, Foucault himself probably accounted for, but it's it's going back to that, um, considering how the social affects the the individual and how the individual um, experiences the social and demands of the social and how the ways we typically think of these things as separate is really problematic that, you know, the, the the psychoanalytic subject is always already social.
0: I mean, this is a really interesting question that you're bringing up, which I think is relevant to a lot of sort of contemporary anti-psychiatry, uh, contemporary, you know, mad studies, contemporary service user movements, which is you know, it's not only professionals and authorities kind of imposing this stuff. There's also an aspect of people wanting something, wanting a way to understand their experience, wanting help, etc. So, that, I mean, that's a, a really interesting question. Just as a final question, I'm curious, kind of, what is on the horizon for you? What are you What are you doing next?
1: Yeah, um, right now I have a few things in the works that I'm I'm getting excited about. Um, you know, we are in the middle of a semester, so it, right now my my concern is grading and and you know tending to my students. But I'm also going to get more uh, involved in the American the the APA's Division twenty four, which is the uh, theoretical and philosophical branch. Uh, so I'm excited to be more involved in that. Um, there's also, you know, the psychology program at Point Park is in the final stages of getting, uh, like I said, a PhD program in critical psychology off the ground, uh, which will really draw on our already existing community clinical programs. Um, and, and so I was pretty involved in the development of that, and I'm really hoping to, to continue to do that. Um, I'm also working on, on some co-editing projects, right? So I'm doing a special edition of um, aRI Journal of Critical Psych, um, which looks at the intersection of critical psychology and psychoanalysis. And uh, I also just joined a team co- to co-edit a book on um, existentialism and sexuality, which, um, you know, the, the chapters are coming in and they're, they're super fascinating. So I'm really excited to, to be able to be a part of that. Um, and then finally, I'm, you know, I think in the very near future, I'm going to be putting a new book together on um, subjectivity in the Lacanian sense and uh, dieting. So, specifically looking at our uh, neurotic relationships to food and dieting and the ways that that gets um, exploited in our, you know, contemporary culture with, with the, the diet industry. So, that's probably within the next year, I'd say, is my next project.
0: All right. Well, you have a lot going on. Um, Thank you for taking the time out to speak with us today.
1: Yeah, thank you. uh, Thank you very much for having me. I uh, am a big fan of Madden America.
0: Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit MaddenAmerica.com for more news, views and updates.